0: Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, RedemptionsHill.com. We have set out at the beginning of 2021 20, uh, to ask the question, uh, what does it mean to be alive in our faith? Nobody wants a, a dead, stagnant uh, faith that's doing nothing. So we are asking that question, what does it look like to be alive? What does it look like to pursue uh, a vibrant flourishing and what we've called vital Christianity. What does that pursuit? look like. This one is worth pressing into because a consistent problem for believers, as we've talked about each week for the last several weeks, is for the for the Christians or the church in general over history to kind of do some things in faith and go through the, the motions as they do these religious actions, but do them in a way that doesn't really drill into their hearts. And this type of faith that is action-based, rhythm-based, ritual-based that your heart is not involved in biblically, One, it doesn't please God. We'll dig into that a little bit further even today. But the other side is is a heart that's divorced from your faith is lifeless and empty, and it will not satisfy you, and it will not be good, and it will not be life-giving. So for that reason, coming out of a rough 2020, we want to pursue life and vibrancy and beauty and faith together. Here's the drive for us. We can't wait till normalcy returns to fight for vital Christianity. The, the fight starts now. We want to pursue this uh, unwaveringly together, life and beauty and our faith together. The unfiltered, the un, uh, kind of pretty reality uh, that many believers find themselves in right now is, is what the Puritans called uh, spiritual uh, declination, spiritual decline. This is a pattern of, of spiritual Weakness. Now, what the church in the, 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 the West and really maybe even outside of the West as well, what the church is, the big C, not just us, but all churches, what we're having to own right now is that for years we have majored on the cool things and we've minored on the crucial things, meaning we've majored on better worship music, Better production, better media, better websites, better PDFs, better sermon booklets. We have uh, majored on ways to get people together and creative in new ways. We have majored on ways to be in the city and for the city. And we've even majored on the Enneagram and how to incorporate that into what we do. But we've minored on a relentless pursuit to press each other and teach each other to read the Bible. We've minored on creating an actual discipline of prayer. We've minored on the importance of of theological literacy. And we've minored on a consistent call and rhythm of repentance. Now hear me, I'm not saying that the things that we've majored on are bad or sinful. I really like some of that stuff, and so do other people. That's why we've majored on it. We've just done what God's people do over and over and over. We've made what is secondary, primary, and, and now we're weaker for it. Because as the pandemic hit and the public gathering was taken away, uh, and it's still taken away for some or altered for some, the huge foundational crack that's revealed itself is really that believers are not good at, disciplined to, or eager to feed themselves or pursue spiritual health on their own. So many are in a, a period of spiritual decline. And I want to set the waters here. That includes pastors at times and MC leaders. And, and this isn't all uh, you or other people. We are all susceptible to this. So this series now and much of our focus for this year is really going to be to fight that. We want to aim to, to change that to see what is necessary uh, to have a vital faith because the, the Bible really isn't silent on it at all. We normally kind of get a little bit frustrated because what the Bible tells us to pursue for vital uh, faith, we call that legalism, but it's actually what's meant to lead us to, to life sometimes. So we are unashamedly going to aim at strength in our faith by going back to the basics in some ways so that no matter what comes, we would be solid in Christ. So, so we wouldn't walk into church going, I better go do that, so that we would be eager to participate in a faith that our God is involved Man, that's the hope. That's the trajectory. Uh, the aim so far in this series, we've kind of flowed through uh, in, in a certain direction. We, we've kind of built this line of thought so far. Vital Christianity is wholehearted Christianity. That was the first sermon. That bears fruit by abiding in Christ. That was the second sermon. And that practices true repentance, not penance. That was last week and now this week and we are going to add in practices resolute obedience. That wording is intentional, it's not simply in practices obedience. It's not practices casual obedience, situational obedience. Here's the big ones. It's not practices my version of obedience or culture's version of obedience, but resolute, determined, unwavering, unyielding obedience to God. A great way maybe to think about this is to practice stubborn obedience. That we would be hard-headed in our obedience in such a way that doesn't yell at other people to obey our rules, but that we obey God and it leads us to life. There's always a potential to run into resistance in a message like this, and I just want to lean into that because we've grown really fond of the idea of grace and love over time. And what's happened there, the unintended consequence there is we've slipped into, or some people's minds have slipped into this idea that obedience isn't really a, a highly necessary part of our faith, or at least it's not a vital part of our personal faith. And the reasoning goes something like this, uh, because Jesus obeyed, because he filled what I, fulfilled what I could not, because his righteousness gets credited to those who believe in him, my job is simply to lean into Christ's love, to learn to accept that fully. My job is to worry less about obedience and more about acceptance. The problem with that is it's a, it's a very incomplete theological picture of what faith is meant to do and why Jesus came. Uh, and if you press it far enough, it's not just incomplete, it's, it's, it's thoroughly heretical. So hear me, yes and amen, Jesus died in our place. Thank goodness for that. Yes and amen, Jesus' perfection is everything. Yes and amen, the blood of Christ was spilled for the sins of people like me and like you. But... Jesus didn't just die to stay in a tomb. He didn't just pay your debt. He also rose again in new life to bring you into new life. He defeated death forever, and he also gave us the Holy Spirit to help us as we live now in obedience. Here it is. He gave us the Holy Spirit so that we may not just be justified and redeemed, but so that we could also be empowered to live like Christ as we follow him. That's to say we are forgiven so that we could be redeemed and reconciled to Jesus and then live like him as we follow him. Right? The beauty of this is, is redemption and, and Jesus paying the price for our sin lets us not be weighed down and crushed by our shame, But then it lets us also get up through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to follow Him, to pursue righteousness. It's worth saying again, I hope this is landing. Jesus died to pay our debt, church, but He rose again to help us live as new creations, to be righteous, set apart, and holy. So the world, when they look at us, doesn't see elitists, but they see a picture of what Jesus is doing in a ragtag group of people. This is what obedience is, and I hope that lands on you this morning with this topic. Biblical, resolute obedience is copying, modeling Jesus. It's modeling our savior. It isn't following some meaningless set of rules that were disconnected from Jesus. It's picking up your cross to follow him and be like him. And we're gonna start kind of looking through uh, the book of Amos in the fifth chapter here and, and tackle this more this ability to follow and pursue righteous and obey. Now, the the first verses we're going to read in two different sections today. We're going to read Amos 5, 10 through 15, and then we'll read later in the book uh, at the tail end of the sermon. But these first verses that we're going to read about, like spoiler alert, if you haven't caught it, they're about obedience. But we're going to look for the people's attitude uh, and, and the text is, is going to flow into really the way that they're called out of their attitude and what they're doing at that point to be called into obedience. So Amos five, ten through 15. This is going to be talking about, again, the first word is they, that, that they is going to be talking about God's people. They hate him who reproves in the gate. And they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions. This isn't the world, this is God's people. And how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, You you turn aside to the needy in the gate, therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. That verse will be crucial today. Seek good and not evil, that you may live, and so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So in this text, we see something that's happening to the to the people of God. Uh, they had become bothered by, inconvenienced by, and annoyed by obedience. The text says it in this way, any person at the gate, this is kind of an area of, of traffic where you come in contact with other people, any person that they'd kind of come into contact with that, that called their attention to something that maybe reproved or, or corrected them, they'd grown to hate that person. Like, they literally were angered by any call towards correction. Further, people who, who spoke truth, they, they detested them, it says. Notice it doesn't say that they detested those who spoke false truth. It doesn't even say that they detested people who spoke their opinion. They got upset when a person brought truth to them and they knew it was truth because that bringing of truth to them was an interruption to what they wanted to do, as a speed bump to their life. It got in the way of what they were doing, and that type of bother wasn't something that they valued. It even said in the text, it's prudent for some people in an evil society who don't want to be bothered by truth to just kind of turn their head and not say very much. Before we go off Pharisee on these people that we're not valuing wanting to obey or be good, Probably a good idea to ask, though, have you done that and have I? Inside, let's put it this way. Have you run into a situation as of late where somebody has brought up something to you that you knew was good and right, that was true, and inside you got angry about it? You got resentful, you got bitter? Has a person tried to steer you toward the truth of God and you cast them aside for it? Has a person tried to remind you of God and what he's asked, and it, it triggered you, it annoyed you, it rubbed you the wrong way? Or maybe it happens this way, because maybe we say, no, that hasn't happened. Well, what about the more passive version? Maybe a person reminds you of how they are being obedient to God. Not in a braggadocious type of look-at-me type of way, but more in a conversation about what God is doing in them, like the reality that they're abiding in Christ, and Christ is producing fruit, and part of that fruit is obedience. And maybe someone is sharing that with you, and they're just genuinely excited that God is doing a work and a good work in them. And even that obedience is flourishing in some ways, and you hear about it, and it just ticks you off. It rubs you the wrong way. And maybe you smile externally, even the words out of your mouth is, that's cool, praise God, brother. But inside, you're just really, really annoyed. See, this is where God's people were. Obedience was not valued, and it was a hindrance. Obedience was, the way that I thought about it this week, obedience is a speed limit that slows you down from living life the way that you want to live life. They did not want their desires or their patterns or their way to be slowed down. I want to do my thing, my way. Don't slow me down. Don't get in my way. If you do, I don't value that. That, That's where they were at. The text goes on to list some ways that they were being disobedient. It's important to read these. Note, though, obedience in our lives may not just be you doing these things. It's It's a wider scope. Okay. Uh, this, these aren't exhaustive for the only ways to be disobedient. That's a better way to put it. Uh, they were making money as a priority. They, they, they wanted to invest stacks of cash, make money, do their thing. For us, it'd be uh, stock markets and plans and business plans. That was their priority. Uh, they ignored lots of people to, to do their priority, and they even kind of took advantage of some people. Right? They, they were uh, taking advantage of some in some ways that let them build really nice houses and pursue a better house and a better life and, and a better castle for themselves, and they got better food and wine from it. Their sins were many, afflicting others or at least not helping the righteous. It was easier for them to do their own thing by ignoring some of the righteous people around than, than to, to walk obediently and righteous with those Not only did they ignore the righteous because that was a hindrance, the text says that they associated with, related to, and walked with the wicked in their culture way more than the followers of God. They had more in common with those who were not God's people than God's people. More than once, there's talks about them ignoring the poor and the marginalized. They turned a blind eye to those who needed to be stood up for, all in the interest of doing their own thing. The best way that we can understand this is they were worried about doing their own thing, keeping their own uh, allegiances, keeping their personal life on the trajectory that they wanted it to be. Just don't get in my way. This was their disobedience. The author goes on to say to those people and to us, wake up. How does he say it? Seek good and not evil, so that you may live. Hear this. The so that you may live in this, in this example is crucial, and these words are captivating. The author doesn't say, assume good about yourself because you're better than other people. It doesn't say maintain the status quo of your version of good or the good that you're already doing. It literally says begin to seek out good now, right now, not evil. Begin to hunt it down. Pursue it. Me and Garrett have been talking about all of a sudden. I kind of started watching these hunting shows, and this guy will will like pursue animals, and, and he'll go out for hunting. If if you don't like that, sorry, but he, he'll he'll stalk animals. He'll end up uh, watching for days before he, he ever goes. There's this intentional pursuit. This is what the author is saying: pursue good. Don't fall into it accidentally. When the, when the when the clouds part, pursue it. Throw yourself into it. Chase it as much as you chase your plans. The inference here is they were seeking evil more than good. We still have a hard time hearing that, though. For our modern minds, think Romans they were invested more in creation than the creator. They were invested more in their work in creation than God's work over his creation that he invited them into. This, biblically, is evil. And there's a call to repentance in the text when you look for it. They had been hating good, annoyed, and put off that it interfered with their lives. And the book says you need to do a 180 and hate evil now, not good. Love what is good. Cherish it. Fight for it and walk it out right now. Then look even deeper at what's planted in the text. And we kind of pointed towards this a second ago. So that you may live. See, the people of God are seeking their own ways, their own interests, their own pursuits. They're chasing those things like the world around them, walking like the world does, believing that that is the path to life and happiness. They believe that that's the way that you live, that that's the good life. Amos 5 says, no, not for God's people, chasing good. Walking in concert with what God wants to do in you and through you as his people, That's where you find life. So instead, chase good, love good, invest in good. That is where you'll find life, and that's where I'll also be with you. I'll walk with you, and you'll find vital faith as you become resolute in fighting to obey and fighting for justice. Again, can you hear that contextualized for us? It would say, stop fighting to maintain your way of life. Fight for good. We will throw down if someone wants to interrupt our way of life. Amos is saying, would you take that posture to follow God? Now, there's a point that we cannot shy away from today. The text says to seek good, love good, and establish justice at the gates. This is telling us that obedience is striving for good, love, and justice. But the question that we have to face, that, that, that the, the, the big church and evangel, or uh, people under the kind of evangelistic uh, heading have, have done a, a really rough job in 2020 with, the question that we have to ask is whose version of those things? Whose version of good do we seek, church? Whose version of love do we throw ourselves into? Whose version of justice do we fight for? There's plenty of justice warriors out there. Who gets to be the compass, the the truth holder? Who gets to be the, the, the gauge? Who gets to be the general that points us where to go? Because again, what is exposed to our shame as believers, is many believe in Jesus, but they're believing in something else. Right? Catch catch that line, right? One of my mentors and me had a talk this week, and we talked... Deeply about this. They believed in Jesus, the historical figure in Jesus, and he came and he was righteous and he died for their sins. They believe all of that to be true, but they're believing in and being formed by and being led by something else. They're believing in the media, they're believing in their political alignments, they're believing in their friends. They meet, this means, again, they believe that Jesus existed and was their Savior something else is the gauge. Something else is forming what is good. Something else is forming what is loving. Something else is forming what is justice. Something else has become their compass. Now, we can see this in our own lives when God is not consulted. When the loudest voices to people personally and to us personally set the stage for what's right or wrong, that's when we're doing this. When the loudest voices set the stage, when they set the, the, the terms of what we aim at and what we pursue and what is good and, and what is wrong and what justice looks like, you may again think, you know, I, I seriously don't do that. That isn't something that I struggle with, but I want to gently press back and say, maybe you do though. What, what could that look like just for, for maybe us? Right? We know the obvious ones. When your politics set your right and wrong, you've, you're off the reservation of Christianity. Right? Those are easy to, to see. What does it look like here? Would well, you ever go to your MC leader instead of praying about your own problem when you're in a pinch? Do you ask why you do that? Do you ever ask another believer, not God, or his spoken, revealed word to you about how to respond when you hit a situation in life? Do you seek out your favorite author, your favorite blogger, your favorite podcast, your, your favorite other pastor, right? Or maybe they just are your favorite pastor. Uh, I'm not mad. Um, when you hit a situation, when you're looking where, what to do and how to respond, and you get there and you're like, what should I think of this? Does God play any role in that, or or does another Christian, or another voice? This is exactly what it looks like to functionally look to other people. Or maybe, here's the other thing, maybe you're prideful. I don't trust other people's opinion, it's my own wisdom. You still don't consult God, but out of the plethora of your own wisdom, you decide what's right and wrong. When we do this, other people or our own selves are trying to operate as the Holy Spirit, to be the counselor, to be our comforter, to be our corrector, to be our encourager. When Jesus says uh, that He was leaving, His words are 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 very interesting, and and I think that they're just lost on us. He says, "It's better that I send the Paraclete to you. There's a better helper." The Holy Spirit who will walk with you, guide with you, uh, help you grow in life, and he'll help you grow not only your knowledge of God, but your, your ability to see what is right and wrong to God, and he'll also grow you in your ability and power to be obedient. Other people can't do that for you. They may be able to form your opinion. They can do nothing to give you power. What we may find is that our hearts have been resolutely obedient like militantly obedient. We hold the line, and we will fight to hold the line. But maybe God is saying to you today, yeah, but that's not my line that you're holding. It's not him that you're obeying. Yes, you're fighting. Not with him or for him, though. Maybe God today is asking you to humbly come to him to be your gauge. It's, it's, guys, we live in a difficult time. Maybe God is asking you, hey, do I actually get to be your God or not? Because when other people set our gauge or when we set our own gauge, what we're doing is it's an Adam and Eve moment at the tree. We're going, no, no, no. I'll be God here. It, it, it's another apple. It's another sin. Going, I could do this better than you. And at some point, God gets to ask us: do, do I get to be God, and will you submit or not? Amos five twenty-one through twenty-four. You're like, man, that's heavy. Wait for verse twenty-one. This is God. I hate cultural opinion. God doesn't hate anything. That's not true. God, I hate, I despise your feasts. He's talking to the church. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I won't even look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So what happens later in the chapter? Because there's a there's a progression. The people were annoyed by truth. right? And they probably didn't even know that they're annoyed by truth. They just prioritized their thing, their pursuits, their wants. So truth just wasn't valuable to get what they wanted. They'd become bothered by correction. They were guilty of chasing their desires, ignoring the people around them. Their hearts were not set upon obedience or listening to God anymore, But despite all of their disobedience, they still went to church. They still did worship gatherings. They still had religious feasts. They still gave burnt offerings. They still even gave portions of their fattened animals to God. They sang songs. They played harps. This means that they did not give their hearts to God or seek to obey Him, but they maintained rituals to let themselves believe that they were. They'd show up physically, sing their little hearts out, offer sacrifices of fattened animals. When they say offering fattened animals, what they're they're saying is they're giving to God out of the portions of the best things that they have, meaning that they're even financially invested to some degree. uh, Actually, not to some degree. They're financially invested largely by giving items of large value to their faith, and yet despite all of their action and all of their work and all of their sacrifices, they didn't obey God. Amos was showing through God's people a, a habit that we, right, me, we, we tend to fall into. This is the habit of fragmenting, it's the habit of separating worship from obedience. Two different categories, two different things, two different parts of our lives. Do you see it? They still went to worship gatherings, they sang and sacrificed. They were happy to offer up those things in in worship, to show up and kind of do these worshipful things, but they did it while withholding obedience from God. They'd separated, I'll worship you, but I will not obey you. It was a different thing. I want my own habits without my heart's obedience. Now, the separation of worship and, and obedience, it's easy to fall into. And what we normally do is, is we'll fall into two extreme camps here. Uh, some love to be obedient to God with their actions. Right? In, in the prodigal son uh, story in the New Testament or parable, it would be like the older brother. Right? They'll, they'll, they'll worship God with their actions, but they won't worship him with their heart and their soul. Right, so, so they're content with doing some good things, with trying to be good, with holding the line, with tithing, with giving to the needy. They will religion, they will rigidly obey a, a set of moral rules that they believe are good, and yet God is nowhere near their heart as they do it. They will obey, but they will not worship. Friends, what does that look like? It looks like coming here and literally have no expectation for God to work in your heart. It looks like coming here and never wanting to sing to God, never, never wanting to worship God, never wanting to pause your rhythm and let the God of the universe, Emmanuel, connect to you. It looks like just being robotically there. It's easy to do. I do it sometimes, and so do you. We obey God, but we are not captivated or in love with him. They believe the sum of their actions makes their faith. Sadly, they miss vital faith because their heart isn't coming alive. The other side of the pendulum, though, this is where the people in Amos 5, where they were, the other side of the coin loves to worship God. They'll sing. They'll give sacrifice. They'll, they'll be there every time the church is open for a gathering and they're eager to do something. But outside of public worship gatherings, uh, they're their guide. They do what they want, they live lives over here that are untouched by their worship on Sunday or when they come to the temple or around other believers. What is hard about this is in public worship, this type of person who can be you or me, when we swing to the side of the pendulum, really seems to be or feels like they're connecting to God. Why? They may even cry, lament, raise their hands, lead a group out in prayer, vigorously worship. Sometimes what you'll notice about your heart and mine, if if maybe you are honest, sometimes we will more vigorously worship to close the gap for the obedience that we weren't willing to give. I'll worship you harder because I know I ignored you over there. The aim is, I, let me undo the way I ignored you. I mean it this time, God. When I grew up in... in not the greatest way to say it, but what I heard this called... And I, I'm struggling whether to even say it because most of us will, I don't do that. The analogy that I've heard it said is, is, is I'm glad to live like hell on Saturday and I'll get saved real hardcore on Sunday. Obedience, no. Worship, yes. Heart that fiercely reaches out for God. And the hard part about that is when my heart does that, you mean it, but you're still not focusing on the obedience on the other side. Still not asking God to help you in the day-to-day to live like he wants. What does this text say about that, though? It says when we get into a pattern too long of doing that, I want to be really fair. We all have off days. You mail it in sometimes, and so do I. But when we get into these patterns over and over that worship hard but don't care to obey, it says in this text, God hates it. It's an activity of faith that God rejects and says, "I want no part of that. It's disgusting." God even says, "Take it away from me." That'd be like him saying, "Redemption Hill." You know those songs you sang this morning. I. I I wish your power went out. That sermon, the other parts of, of, of liturgy, take it away. I won't listen to it. I won't be a part of it until you decide that you want justice to roll down. Until you want my righteousness to overflow in your life. Again, this is not God trying to crush, to live A fragmented worship from obedience, it's always going to make your heart feel heavy and never flourish. Here's the takeaway that I hope that we don't miss today, though. You'll never find vital life-giving Christianity without resolute obedience. The reason for that is very simple. To be resolutely obedient to Christ, our Lord, will require him to be in your life. You can't obey on your own. That's why he had to come to die. To be empowered to follow him to obey, you also can't do that on your own. Are, are, are you following me? To obey is to depend on him. To resolutely, hard-headedly obey will also require the Holy Spirit's power as well. You will not obey without the power of the Spirit. That means to obey, to be obedient, to be resolutely obedient. You cannot rely on your friends, your parents, your MC leader, your pastor, your idol, your newsfeed, your president, your bestie, or anything else. You'll have to ask the Holy Spirit for that. And what will the Spirit do? Point you to Jesus who will point you to God and empower you. See, the play here when we get there is to ask, Holy Spirit, will you help me see Jesus more? Will you help me cherish him more? Will you help me hear what he's asking from me? And then Holy Spirit, even when that terrifies me, will you give me the strength and the confidence and the ability to walk it out in obedience? Here's the thing that many people have told me and my own heart struggles with it. Sometimes we won't ask the Holy Spirit what he wants because we're afraid of what he'll say. It's easier not to know. What if we said, God, what do you want me to do? And what does obedience look like? What are you calling me to now, even in a pandemic? Even when, because here's the thing, obedience is never convenient. This may be one of the greatest reasons that our faiths feel anemic. Anemic. It's because we're walking without the power, leading, or help of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus promised. Hear Jesus' words to the disciples who are petrified. It's better that I go. There's a better helper. And then Jesus said things like, you're going to do greater things when the Holy Spirit comes and empowers you. He'll walk with you, lead you guide you and do amazing things in and through you. What landed me on me this week start trying to land the plane. I think it was late one night. I got my first cell phone on my 18th birthday. Right? I was a senior in high school. Graduated in 2001. So when I turned 18, 18 in February, right? There's not even that much time left in my senior year. When I turned 18, my parents gave me a cell phone. Let me show my age more. It was one of the Nokia Snickers phones. You remember those? The size of a Snickers bar, show my age. Later, I found out that they didn't really give me the phone, though. They just let me borrow it. Uh, Because when I graduated, they said, yeah, can I get that back? You need to go get your own. But I received with this borrowed phone very, very, here's your borrowed present, very, very strict instructions that the cell phone, that wasn't a gift, I'm not bitter, that I was to leave it in my car during school. And that I could only use it in case of emergencies. Or when I was going to be late to curfew, I could use it so I could get yelled at. And if I absolutely needed something big, if there was a major thing that I couldn't deal with, then I could, then I could use the phone, right? Back then, right, right now, the commodity is, is, is uh, your data. Back then, the commodity… Nobody even texted back then. That wasn't a thing. The commodity was minutes. And my parents didn't want to rack up a huge bill, so they didn't want me using it. So I learned the phone was for infrequent, inconsistent emergency use when I was in trouble and couldn't handle things on my own. That scenario, unfortunately, is exactly the way that we treat the Holy Spirit. As if his guidance, his services, his connection is a Hail Mary from when we've dug ourselves in too deep to get out on our own. Only when we're over our head, only when we're desperate, infrequently. Instead of, and here's the part that I hope that our hearts would be stirred towards Not just lament, but good. Instead of seeing that Jesus joyfully gave us the Holy Spirit. So that every single day you may have guidance and connection. All those moments that you feel alone, the Holy Spirit is there so that you don't. So you may be able to see Jesus more, hear his voice, understand what he wants from you. Again, we may have forgot that Jesus did not die to free us only from the, the penalty of our sins. He died also to empower us to live lives now that are not enslaved to sin anymore. Will we find perfection? No. Can we get a lot further to a holy life than maybe what we think? Yes, because the Holy Spirit will help us make real and meaningful progress. And this is where the Bible says that we can learn to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We can. W- worship with our hearts, and we can obey. as a body of believers who come together and sing joyfully, and as obedient individuals who get sent throughout the city the rest of the week as well. Today, if you find yourself still wondering what is next to find life in your faith, Gary, you can come back up. Might you consider just stopping for a moment Stop thinking about what you're going to do for lunch and if you're going to join the membership thing and if you hate this message or all these other things. Just slow down and ask God to show you through the Holy Spirit right now, what's he calling you to, to be obedient? Can we, can we just wrestle with this intention? Because if you're going like, yeah, yeah I'm not going to do that, but I'll sing that song. That's what was in Amos (laughs) 5. And maybe we do this as well. It shouldn't be a surprise in light of last week's true repentance message. Holy Spirit, what are you calling me to towards uh, for obedience? And maybe you're bold enough to know that you can also ask, God, will you show me ways that I've been rejecting being obedient? The beauty of our faith is that God speaks and his Holy Spirit still works. And you may be surprised if you ask what God may show you here and now. I pray that we find the spot where our hearts do worship together, but that worship is married to hard-headed, stubborn obedience. This is Holy Spirit, what do you want to do with me? In moments of my life, and I think Garrett would agree, like, the moments that your faith comes alive is when you're on the edge and the Holy Spirit is asking you to do things that you're going, I don't know if I want to do that. And you're depending on and empowered and trusting the Spirit and beauty comes there. One of the questions that we just have to ask on a ground floor or level is, do we want that though? Do we want a guide? Are we okay with an interruption? Do we give God's voice permission to be the one that becomes our gauge, or do we not? I'm going to pray as we worship that you would ask those questions. If, if you're just unsure, like, I don't know, I don't really know, like, how do we, how we, Father, Son, Spirit, like, what do we do? It's okay if you mess it up. Just ask. Holy Spirit, I, I maybe ignored obedience in you. you. Show me what obedience looks like. Will you help me in my unbelief? Will you help me in the ways that I've rejected? Will you help me to slow down my path so I can see a little bit of what you want? Well, that we would do that and see beauty from it. We will take communion today. The beauty of the table, when we tackle messages that may be difficult, here's the beauty, the table's still there. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread. matter what obedience is you can still come to the table and understand that there's still sacrifice the play isn't for you now to try and re-crucify yourself it's to lean into the fact that christ was crucified and ask him to empower you to walk. there's still a sacrifice no matter how you've done on this i pray that we have pursued obedient and worshipful lives and we see beauty you stay in